Historically, one of the key features distinguishing Christianity from other religions hasn't just been the emphasis on certain claims about Jesus, like claims he was the Son of God or the Messiah, that he was fully God, fully human, that he rose from the dead, etc., but also the unique emphasis on this Christ as being the supreme model for how we ought to live in the world. Christians have made claims that Christ is the pattern and prototype for a new kind of humanity. But just because someone claims that a certain mode of being in the world is Christ-like doesn't make it so. Consider the competing ways two different kinds of Christians might think the right way and right mode of being in the world is. Let's consider Christian A in this hypothetical scenario. Christian A wears a red Make America Great Again hat. Christian B distinguishes their preferred pronouns in their Twitter bio. Now, these two caricatures I've just brought up, you can probably imagine the other subsets of beliefs that often accompany those sorts of behaviors and attitudes, both of which may be truly earnest in thinking they are following Christ in the world, and yet both seem to have some pretty divergent pictures of what the mode of being should be like for someone who is attempting to follow Jesus in the world. Even the most well-intended people can make critical errors in discerning who Jesus was and is, and then subsequently can make critical errors about how they are to model and follow Jesus's exemplar in the world. In today's episode, we'll explore one of the most common and easy to miss errors when it comes to figuring out who Jesus was, and we'll propose a better way forward. My name is Paul Anleitner. Thanks for listening to Deep Talks. For those of you who have been listening for quite some time, I do plan on returning to the Problem of Evil series, but the remaining parts are so dense. There's so much more research um, and really the condensing of quite a bit of information that I need to do and to carefully select and curate what I want to bring out as essential components to the story, to this uh, particular series. Otherwise, it would go on forever. I'm taking a break and making sure that we're, we're still having meaningful dialogue about important issues, even as I'm still kind of multitasking and doing other work to finish up that research. So with that in mind, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. In the late 2nd century, a Christian apologist named Tatian attempted to piece together from the four Gospels that we have in our Bible today a singular narrative about the life of Christ. This attempt at a singular composite of the four Gospels was called the Diatessaron, and on the surface, the well-intended act of trying to make a singular timeline and to harmonize the stories of Jesus presented in the four Gospels may actually seem like a helpful idea, you know, especially when you're trying to tell the story of Jesus to people who have little to no knowledge of him. In fact, even for years, as I taught classes on the life of Christ and the Gospels, I would follow even a sort of diatessaron approach with a harmony of the Gospels edition of the Bible. Maybe some of you have have a, a version of the Bible that's like that, or you've, you've seen those uh, before. 
what those Bibles intend to do is to put essentially the parallel passages together in a sequence that tells the sort of chronological narrative of Jesus's birth, his life, ministry, death, and resurrection, right? And it actually seems like a good idea. As modern movie watchers and and fiction readers, stories are often, most often, presented to us in a chronological sequence. So it kind of makes sense to try to help people understand the life of Jesus that we could maybe try to piece together this sort of chronological movie-like sequence of events from his life. Here's the problem, though. As well-intended as that is, and I even think the Christian apologistation was very well-intended in not trying to make his own Bible, but was just essentially trying to do something that he saw would be helpful. Let's take these four Gospels and let's just turn them into one story. But as well-intended as that seems to be, there's actually a really big problem with it. And it's not a problem that catches us or catches our attention all the time. It's not like if someone were to come and say, well, I'm going to take out this gospel and I'm going to, uh, or I'm going to combine these two gospels and I'm going to give you guys a new book that I'm saying is inspired. Most Christians would hear language like that or someone's plan to do something like that and be major red flags right away. But this is still a significant problem that we don't often pick up on right away. Even I didn't, as someone who had taught Bible classes for years. The problem is we don't have a singular story on Jesus given to us in the Bible. What we have, what's been given to us and passed down to us, is four stories, four ancient biographies with ancient authors telling their story to ancient communities with inspired intentions for how their unique portrait, their unique picture, their unique telling of the story of Jesus should shape the beliefs and practices of those early Christian communities. Now, if we're going to use words like inspired to talk about the scriptures— and I do. I, I, I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I see it as authoritative, right? I, I'm a pastor who holds these things and, you know, treats the Bible in that, that manner in my own church community and in my own family. If we are to do that, and first of all, let me say, if you're not there, that's okay. I, I, um, I understand the reasons why people aren't there, but I still hope, even if you're not there, that you would keep listening. <laughs> Maybe you'll see that what you've been told is uh, the word inspired or inerrant, what that means about the Bible, maybe is actually far, far, far away from what many and most biblical scholars, even in evangelical and conservative spaces, mean when they talk about the inspiration and authority of Scripture. So hang on, even if you're not there, even if you don't, I think there's value in today's episode for you. But especially for those of you that hold fast to these, uh, these beliefs that we have about the scriptures in themselves, you hold fast to this idea of the inspiration, the authority of scripture, or maybe you like to even use words like inerrancy. If we are to treat these inspired gospels as genuine authority, authoritative revelation that's superlative to anything, let's say even... You know, we've got, we've got from 
like the ancient historian Josephus, we have some details in his chronicles about who Christ was from his perspective. They're minimal, they're sparse, but they're there. If we're going to treat the four Gospels as superlative to the writings of Josephus, that we're going to say the Gospels are genuine, authoritative revelation, where Josephus is just maybe sharing his perspective on history, or if we're going to say things like the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are genuine, authoritative revelations superlative to things like the much later Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, for example. We need to be clear and consistent on finding where the inspiration resides. This is something we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast before in the past, to think through coherently and logically to assess these things that we claim we believe about the nature of Scripture. When we use words like inspiration, what do we mean? And I'm always asking the question of, well, don't we want to get as close to the location of inspiration as possible? Am I inspired? Am I inspired as the reader? We've talked about many reasons in the past why we shouldn't hold to ourselves being the inspired readers, because then we could get a hundred people in a room who think their readings are inspired, give them a passage of scripture, give them a book of the Bible to read together, and ask them, tell us what this means to you, and we might have a hundred different interpretations. And if that's the case, if everybody's interpretation is inspired, then no one's is. So we want to move away from that perspective, obviously. And as we try to trace back, you know, logically, coherently, what we're talking about when we say a word like inspired, that the scriptures are inspired, and we're trying to get as close to the location of inspiration as we possibly can, if we were to trace that all the way back, we would say that ultimate truth resides in God as the origin of all truth, goodness, and beauty. The location of inspiration is found in God himself. But God has to reveal and disclose this to humanity. And we believe, Christians have historically believed, that God intended to reveal himself to humanity in various forms of communication, including things like in creation and via our faculties of reason. If we don't affirm that, then we're in a lot of trouble. If we don't affirm that God has attempted to reveal himself and his nature in creation, then there's massive problems. If we don't affirm that God has attempted to give us a mode of understanding at least facets of him via his creation and via our ability to look for coherent patterns in creation and to use our faculties of reason to discern things, then we can't affirm things like the inspiration of Scripture. Because Scripture is presented to us in a way that it takes our faculties of reason to discern it. So we affirm that. And then Christians have historically affirmed that God's, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, inspired these particular authors who were located in particular cultures, in particular places in time, to write with particular purposes to particular audiences. And our goal then is to get as close as we possibly can to those particular people, the authors, the people they're writing to, to their location, to their culture. 
Our goal is to close as much of the distance gap between our culture, our language, our time, and worldview, and to close the gap between our world and theirs, to close it as much as we possibly can. That helps us it helps us narrow down the distance between our understanding of the world, our understanding in this particular case, we're focusing in on trying to understand our, the right mode of being, the right way to act in the world in keeping with Christ. As we try to understand that, we try to close the distance between where we stand right now and where we're saying the inspired revelation resides. As we embark on that journey, we can begin to see why trying to do something like harmonize the gospel authors or create some sort of composite historical picture of Jesus actually keeps us at a distance. It actually keeps us further away from the inspired picture. It keeps us uh, farther removed from seeing the inspired pictures, as diverse as these inspired pictures can be at times. Some might even want to say contradictory. I don't think it's that when we properly think through this and understand this. When we do things like harmonize the gospel, we erode the distinctions. We can't see them because we're still too far away. We are trying to make the Bible something modern. We're trying to read it through our modern eyes. What we're saying is our perspective on how to read an ancient text is the correct one, that I can read the an ancient biography like the uh, that we, like we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I can read it the same way as, say, reading an email or a science textbook. And of course, that's absurd. We can't read it in the same exact manner because we don't inhabit the same cultural location. So we need to get closer, all right? And as we do that, as we do that, we begin to get closer to what God's inspired intentions are. Now, making some sort of mental movie in our heads as we read the Gospels it might actually be inevitable, right? That's just kind of how our imagination works. So I'm not discouraging that. And even imagining what Jesus's life would have looked like if they somehow had cameras around back then and were making some sort of chronological documentary about his life, that, that might even be a fun thought experiment. But as followers of Jesus, we don't hold up the diatessaron as the map of the way of Jesus. We hold up the four Gospels. The sort of one picture of Jesus to rule them all approach actually does us a lot of harm. And it seems innocuous. It seems innocent. And again, I don't think people that do this are malevolent. I wasn't doing this when I used to present uh, the the stories, the stories and portraits of Jesus as sort of one harmonized unified, univocal story. But what I didn't realize was that this approach harmfully erodes the inspired distinctions in each gospel author's portrait of Jesus. And and it can, as a result of eroding those distinctions, it can actually neglect how these ancient biographies were intentionally and inspired in their very shaping to address the needs of the of their unique original 
reading and or we might say listening communities. It's only when we begin to wrestle with those distinct portraits, the distinct portrait Matthew paints, the distinct portrait Mark paints, the distinct portrait Luke paints, the distinct portrait John paints, when we wrestle with those distinct portraits individually and, and we begin to appreciate the individual pastoral emphases that these authors have to the unique audiences, and then and then we, we can allow our, our, our modern ethical concerns, concerns about how I should act in 2020, we can allow those ethical concerns to be informed by their first century concerns, then we will be able to allow the scriptures as they are to shape our ethical imaginations. Do you pick up on the difference? What we've received in the scriptures as they are isn't the same thing as someone taking, let's say, the Gospels and making a movie like The Passion of the Christ. The community of God and the Spirit of God didn't bear witness to the Passion of the Christ being inspired. It doesn't bear witness to the, the, the sort of mental movies we might make if we were to take a harmony of the Gospels book and to imagine this happening in some chronological timeline. It doesn't mean that those things are wrong doesn't mean that watching a, a movie someone makes about Jesus is wrong or the, the imagination that you might have to kind of do this thought experiment about putting some sort of timeline together of Jesus' life. It doesn't make it wrong so far as we don't allow that to substitute for the scriptures that we actually have. So just one example of these distinctions that we have in these dis four distinct portraits— which are, is really clear to anyone who tries to make these four portraits into one. If you try to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and you try to combine them into just one consolidated, uh, amalgamated, um, now univocal portrait or song about Jesus, one thing that you'll notice right away is how different the sequence of events can be presented from book to book. The sequence you could read through um, even the synoptic gospels, right? There's obviously major, major differences in tonality and the sequence of events in um, in John's gospel, right? Those, those are really clear. But even in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you put those side to side and you go, hey, was it, was it, what what came after this again? Okay, because Mark says this comes after this. Matthew says this event comes after this event in Jesus' life and ministry. So, so which one is it? Now, to the uneducated modern skeptic, or maybe I should say un uneducated is too harsh of a word. Let's just say undereducated modern skeptic. They might say something like, see, these gospels can't be historically accurate. They don't, even, they don't even agree on the order of events in Jesus' life and ministry. And, you know, that's a good point, you know? It's a good point if, again, we don't try to close the gap, if we try to make uh, our questions of the text in our modern context to be the inspired questions of the text— have you ever tried? This is this is a really fun challenge. Not fun. <laughs> it's really actually it's not a fun challenge. It's a challenge that um, in my college years I, I remember getting from an atheist, 
and it really, really threw me for a loop. Have you ever tried to put together a singular, cohesive chronological timeline on what happened from Easter Sun Easter Sunday through Jesus's ascension? Have you ever tried to do that based on the four Gospels? You take, you know, towards the end of each of the four Gospels, you take all the events from Easter Sunday that have been recorded, and uh, you you try to make make a timeline with it. And <laughs> maybe some of you are like kind of scrambling, opening up the ends of each gospel to kind of look at it. Give that a try sometime. And I'll tell you, good luck. <laughs> when I was in college and got challenged by an atheist with that task, I mean, honestly, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not joking. It, it, it caused me to almost lose my entire faith in the trustworthiness of the gospels. And that's because I, I didn't have good biblical hermeneutics at the time. I, I didn't have a, a proper maybe theology of the scriptures or even the proper philosophy of the scriptures. What I didn't know then, and what many people don't know now, is that the rules of first century biographies aren't the same rules modern people abide by when you ask them to write a story or a history paper in high school on some famous person or something like that especially when it comes to how ancient authors writing first century biographies in that Greco-Roman world, especially when it comes to how they use sequence in their narratives, is very different than the rules we would say are normative in our culture today. So think back to the last movie you watched. How was that story told? Was it told in a chronological sequence of events, taking you from the beginning of the story to the end of the story? It very likely was. Most most are like that. What about the last, uh, maybe, you know, some of you have to go way, way back in the, the recesses of your mind to remember this. When was the last time you wrote a history paper in high school? Let's say you'd write a paper in high school or elementary school on Abraham Lincoln. How did you begin that paper? Well, you probably began it with Abraham Lincoln was born, yada, 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 in this time, and you go through a chronological sequence of events in that person's life. Now, while we may be obsessed with sequencing a story in its chronological fashion, it's weird for us to think, and it, it, can, it, can, it can become as a shock to us, but not everybody's thought like that throughout history when they have written stories, when they've written biographies, and it certainly wasn't the case of ancient biography writers and authors in the first century world in which the, the Gospels are comprised. And while it's obvious when we read the Gospels, we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that there's, there's some kind of chronological sequence happening. Otherwise, well, you might have Jesus' death happening at the beginning of the book and his birth happening at the end. The way the ancient authors, these ancient authors sequence events in Jesus' life has much deeper pastoral purposes than simply telling, on Tuesday, Jesus did this, then on Wednesday, he did this, and on Thursday, he did this event. No, the sequence, this is one of the big distinctions, and it can throw us for a loop unless we understand the purposes. This is part of the inspired purview that God has for these authors in their culture, in their unique cultural setting, their ancient cultural setting, and their worldview. The way that they are thinking about writing is not the same way that we think about writing. 
And so they're not just going through and telling a story that Jesus did this on Tuesday, and then Wednesday he did this, and then Thursday he did this. No. The very sequencing of events has pastoral purposes. And when you actually go through and like read in one sitting, you'll start to see some of these deep connections that happens in the very way the events and stories are laid out. I'd even say, I'd even go so far as to say that the entire gospel, each gospel is laid out so intentionally in their sequencing that I'd say it's even hard for us to simply pluck out a, let's say, a singular parable or an event from Jesus's life, to pluck it out from its surrounding co-text and then say something like, well, this passage is showing us we ought to believe or do X, Y, or Z with our lives. As New Testament scholar Francis Watson argues, quote, we therefore cannot extract Jesus's ethical instruction from its narrative context, basing our accounts of New Testament ethics exclusively on, for example, say the Sermon on the Mount. That is to ignore the overarching biographical genre of the work in which the Sermon of the Mount Sermon on the Mount is to be found, the Gospel of Matthew, end quote. What Watson's arguing here is that if we're going to say, this is the way we ought to live in the world, this is the way we ought to live as we pattern our lives on the prototype of Jesus, we can't even just say, grab something as monumental as the Sermon on the Mount to pluck that out of its context and go, we can base all of the way that we are to live in the world based on this exclusive three chapters in Matthew's gospel. To do that is to neglect the biographical nature of this, this ancient biography. It's to, to neglect that the Sermon on the Mount sits within another sequence of events. You have to read the entirety of the gospel of Matthew to properly understand Matthew's inspired pastoral intentions for that first century community that he was writing for. So what might be a better way? I'd propose the better way is to look at each of these unique four portraits as if we're standing in an art gallery and we see four unique portraits of Jesus, four portraits that are no mere painting, but that we're also claiming are inspired and authoritative. But we notice that the each of these painters has some different features about Jesus they may be highlighting. If we want to learn about how we ought to live as we pattern our lives on the model and exemplar of Jesus, we can't do it detached from looking at each of the four portraits. So perhaps a better way forward is to look at each four por- each of these four portraits to look at them each individually and to say, what does this portrait, this unique portrait, show us about Jesus? And then, what does the next portrait show us about Jesus and how we ought to live? And to not rush to make all four portraits somehow combined together to eliminate all of their distinctions and their unique emphases. No, we don't want to do that. As we move forward, let's look at each of the four portraits of Jesus presented to us by the gospel authors. 
Portrait number one marks Jesus. Imitate the suffering servant. Most modern scholars believe that the four gospel authors had no direct communication with each other when they wrote their own biographies about Jesus. The predominant theory right now is something called the two-source theory. Now, there's certainly debates about this, but this one right now is probably uh, the, the majority viewpoint among biblical New Testament scholars. The two-source theory postulates that Mark should be considered the earliest source for the other synoptic gospels, along with something that people often refer to as the Q source, right? That there might have been some other uh, earlier source that was written down, comprised of things that had happened during Jesus's life and ministry. We don't know this for certain, but this is one of the top opinions right now. As such, it would seem appropriate for us to begin, if Mark is the earliest and we actually uh, can, we have strong reason to believe that Mark is the earliest foundational gospel, it seems appropriate for us to look at Mark's gospel as foundational for deriving Jesus's core ethical vision. And then what we'd want to do after that is allow Matthew, Luke, and John's distinctions to make their clear contributions. There's plenty of evidence that Matthew and Luke, and especially Matthew and Luke, uh, used, Mark's gospel was already around. And what Matthew and Luke were doing were adding unique distinctions and contributions. They said, well, here's the picture of Jesus, but we need to add this. We need to add these details. Or And sometimes it's subtracting certain things, not because they didn't happen, but because Matthew, Luke, and then John, which was written much later, have clear pastoral intentions for their early Christian communities. There are things their Christian communities are going through and experiencing that Matthew and Luke want to provide instructions for them on their mode of being and how they ought to live in the world that are unique to them, that maybe Mark's gospel doesn't highlight in the same way. So let's start with Mark, and then we're going to move into Matthew, Luke, and John to see the distinctions in those gospels. Central to Mark's portrait of Jesus is the identification of Jesus's messiahship with the prophet Isaiah's quote, what we might call the second exodus motif. Mark's Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's the suffering servant who not only announces the here and not yet kingdom of God as a prophet, but through suffering and death on a cross establishes how this reign of God is to be advanced. Now, traditionally, it's been held that Mark's gospel was first disseminated throughout the Roman Empire after Peter's death, whose own stories were likely the very basis of this gospel. So in many ways, often people, scholars, when they think about Mark's gospel, they, they think about it as perhaps Peter's eyewitness stories into, his, uh, into the life of Jesus. This happened... Mark's gospel was disseminated in a time of great persecution and suffering for these new followers of the way. The clear ethical implication of Jesus' central teaching and example in Mark is this. Followers of Jesus must embrace the way of the cross, become suffering servants for the sake of the world. Why? Because Jesus was the suffering servant 
This is so central to Mark. Not only must they imitate and embrace the way of the cross, become suffering servants, but they must resist their fallen urges for prestige and political power in the midst of this violent clash that's happening in the Roman Empire, the, the, the political upheaval that's beginning to take place, the, the persecution that is coming to followers of Jesus. These followers of Jesus, in the face of that, they must resist the urges for prestige and political power. We see that in places like Mark 8, 27 to 38, Mark 9, 30 to 33, Mark 10, 32 to 35. Throughout Mark, Jesus is constantly reminding his disciples who just, they don't seem to get it. He's always reminding him that the kingship of God, quote, the kingship of God leads to the cross for those who proclaim it. That's from uh, the, that quotes from the um, ethicist, Christian ethicist, Glenn Stassen. The kingship of God leads to the cross for those who proclaim it. So if you're going to participate in the way of the cross, according to Mark's portrait of Jesus, we're going to stand back and we just want to look at Mark's picture and portrait. Participating in the way of the cross places Jesus's message in the continuum of Isaiah's prophetic tradition, which emphasizes that righteous suffering, suffering occurred as the result of living out the great commandment to love God and love neighbor in the face of injustice. Those who do that will be saved and rewarded by God's ultimate deliverance. God's deliverance of Jesus from the grave encourages those early persecuted believers to hold fast, keep holding on. You can hear, you know, Mark, the way that Mark arranges in all of Mark's gospel leads to the cross. It leads to Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't step foot in Jerusalem, unlike in John's gospel. Jesus doesn't step foot in Jerusalem until Passion Week. All of it is pointing to the cross, pointing to the cross. And not just that, but that those who are faithful, as Jesus was faithful to the cross, those persecute believers who hold fast to God's final deliverance, even as they themselves continue to spread the reign of God in the face of fierce resistance, they will be finally vindicated, just as Jesus was. This is the prophesied reign of God, this prophesied reign of God, which Isaiah envisioned being made manifest as deliverance, justice, peace, healing, restoration, rebuilding of community, joy in the experience of God's presence is made manifest in the ministry of Jesus. And it, it reaches its complete fulfillment when, quote, and we see this in Mark 13, 26 to 27, it will reach its complete fulfillment when, quote, the Son of Man comes in the clouds with great power and glory. So, these are Mark's unique emphases. These are emphases in the book of Mark. In light of that, what are the ethical implications for Mark's first century Roman Christian community? These are Christians living within the Roman world, possibly even in Rome itself. How should they act? What should their mode of being be in this first century? The unique portrait Mark paints is this, First of all, as a Christian community, they're to love God and to love their neighbor. And that means 
the implications of that means. Specifically, they are not to be in competition with each other to become the greatest. Mark 10, 35 to 45. Authoritarianism is the way of the Gentiles. It's the way of the Romans. And they're not to fight to move up these sorts of hierarchical ladders to move to the top of the authoritarian hierarchy. They're not to fight and to rebel with violence in the face of that persecution. These are important ethical instructions for this community. But greatness in the kingdom is attained through becoming a servant to all. Secondly, in their own persecution, followers of Jesus may feel abandoned and forsaken by friends and by God but so did Jesus, and yet he was raised in final victory. You could look at Mark 14, 50, or Mark 15, 33-34. Why, why is this detail, oh my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me, included in Mark's story? Well, it's, yeah, on one hand you go, well, because Jesus actually said it. Yes, and that's true, but his inclusion of it we can see through the sequence of events, and we, when we understand more about the culture and context of Mark's likely audience, we can see that they are a people experiencing immense persecution. They may even feel abandoned and forsaken by God, maybe even by their own friends. There be people in these Christian communities who most certainly had friends or family member that when the persecution fires hit, they said, we're out. And they gave up on the faith, and they gave up on their friends and left them to their persecutors. The clear implications from Jesus' example is that they shouldn't respond to their persecutors in violence. They should be faithful unto death and trust in God's final vindication. You can't isolate Jesus' eth ethics from Jesus' eschatology. There's no separating them. The ethics only make sense in light of Jesus' eschatology. It only makes sense if the Son of Man comes in the clouds with great power and glory. It only makes sense. Good Friday only makes sense. The cross only makes sense as the proper mode, not just for Christ to fulfill prophecy and to, to, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I am in no ways trying to to minimize the significance of the cross on that front. But for Mark, the cross isn't just a, isn't just a, a cosmological event, right, that changes that. Mark is providing these people in the midst of persecution and suffering with a, here is why you need to press on. Here is your motivation that even though you experience right now, you feel abandonment, that abandonment will be all set right when Jesus' rule and reign is fully established. The ethics makes no sense without Jesus' eschatology. Good Friday makes no sense without an Easter. So this we could say for Mark's gospel, there's this eschatologically informed ethic of faithful trust in God's vindication. How do they do that? For that first century witness. And again, guys, you know, some of this may be unsettling for us in our American culture. What I'm going to say here is going to be unsettling for many of us. But I think if we were to step back 
and we were to check our biases at the door and we go, what is being portrayed and communicated to this community in Mark's time? Even if you're not ready to make the leap of application and going, I'm ready to follow this way and figure out what it means for us today, that's another step. I think it's still important that we look at Mark's gospel and go, here's what the eschatologically informed ethic is for this early Christian community based on Mark's gospel and what he's presenting to us about Jesus's life, ministry, and teaching. You need to trust in God's vindication, and you do that. You demonstrate your trust in God's final vindication through the practice of bearing a nonviolent witness to Christ in suffering. And this is repeated throughout Acts, throughout the epistles, throughout the book of Revelation. Think of Revelation 2.10. As N.T. Wright observes, quote, Jesus was redefining power, and his violent death was the ultimate demonstration in practice of that definition. Portrait 2. Matthew's Jesus, Ethics from Above All. If Mark's portrait of Jesus is as the prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah's ethical vision, then Matthew's portrait of Jesus is as the culmination and even divinely authoritative reinterpreter of Moses' ethical vision. Certainly, the anonymous author we call Matthew imports the foundational ethical picture of Jesus that Mark's gospel paints. After all, Most of Mark's material, which is earlier, is also found in Matthew. But Matthew brings in some of his own unique emphases and material to his original reading and listening community. He opens up his biography with a genealogy of Jesus, something that Mark doesn't do. And in doing so, Matthew attempts to establish from the onset with his primarily Jewish audience the supreme authority of Jesus' teaching in the history of God's revealed communication with Israel. In the years that followed the destruction, the Temple of Jerusalem in AD 70, there were, there were these really strong questions about, well, what's the continuing value of the Torah among Jewish and Gentile believers? Matthew's gospel deals with that question, but gives a special focus to this intentional connection of Jesus to the Torah in ways that Mark nor any other gospel author does. And this is really crucial that we see this. This is what gets lost when we just even try to harmonize Mark and Matthew. If we were just to harmonize those into one sort of cohesive timeline or story, when doing so, we would lose. We'd probably get a lot of the things that Mark was trying to say, because Matthew uses that same, the same material. He retells the same story, but he also adds and emphasizes some unique things things that are unique to Jewish readers and listeners. One way that Matthew does this is by regularly repeating that Jesus' actions and the events in his life, the events that happened surrounding Jesus, quote, happened to fulfill what was written in the prophets, end quote. See, for example, Matthew 1, 22-23, Matthew 2.15, Matthew 2.17-18, or Matthew 4, 14 to 16, Matthew 8, 17, Matthew 12, 17 to 21, Matthew 13 and 35, uh, verse 35, Matthew 21, 4 through 5, Matthew 27, 9 through 10. 
You see all of those. There's a repeat thread happening there as you go through the sequencing of Matthew. It's like, oh, I'm one chapter in. Of course, there weren't chapters in the original composition. I get a little bit further. I'm in Matthew 4. I see this idea repeated. I'm in Matthew 8. I see it repeated all the way through the repetition of this idea that you don't see in the same way in Mark. This repeated line that this happened to fulfill what was written in the prophets. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of the Torah, but Matthew takes great care to present something even more controversial. Jesus is the definitive authoritative teacher. Jesus assumes that Israel's ethic from above story, so in other words, Jesus assumes that their ethics, the ethics of Israel comes from above, and he shifts it at the same time. He shifts the, the ethical standard to be coming from his own self. He shifts it toward himself. It's such a revolution. It would have been such a controversial thing for Jesus to do, which is why he ends up getting killed <laughs> in some part, that he assumes for his own self, yes, Israel, your story and your ethics comes from above, but I'm the authoritative teacher. It actually, what is good and true comes from me. And here I'm telling you, this is the definitive, authoritative, ethical way for you to live in the world. In Matthew, Jesus has five major teaching discourses that clearly parallels, parallel Moses' Pentateuch. This is such a unique thing. You you miss it if you harmonize the Gospels together. You miss and you, you see it as you read it in sequence here, the sequence that Matthew provides. It's supposed to parallel the Pentateuch. Here's five major teaching discourses. You go to Matthew 5, 1 to 7, uh, or Matthew 5, 1 to 7, 29. You go Matthew 10, 5 to 42. You go Matthew 13, 1 to 52. Matthew 1, 18, 1, 18, I should say, 1 to 35, Matthew 24, 1 to 25, 46. So you can see those. If you want to look those up, these are five clear, distinct, major teaching discourses that parallel the Pentateuch. Within these, the most notable discourse is the first discourse, aka what we often call the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus frequently, he speaks in these antitheses regarding previous Torah commands. And that's a big deal. Just like Jesus' transfiguration between Moses and Elijah happens, and you hear the voice of the Father say, this is my son, listen to him. Just as that scene shows Jesus as superior to Moses and Elijah, Jesus is frequently presented throughout the Gospel of Matthew as being superlative to Moses, that his teaching is superlative to the law and superlative to the prophetic traditions because of his divine his divine authority, not by canceling it, right? He doesn't come to cancel it, but he's, he's saying, he comes and demonstrates that he is superlative, that he is the supreme authority. Jesus is the transcendent moral reference point. Jesus is the transcendent uh, source of our ethics, of how we are attempting to to derive how we are to live in the world. And he shifts it. He shifts it and says, you know what? 
I, you know, Moses and the prophets, I affirm these things. I'm the fulfillment of them. And now your new anchor point is no longer just Moses. I've come and I am here to fulfill what Moses spoke about. We see that talked about in John 2 as well, but this is a special emphasis in Matthew. In the Sermon on the Mount, as well as the other discourses, one of the unique emphases of Jesus is his urgent call. So he's speaking to this Jewish community, primarily helping them wrestle with what's the rule of the Torah in my life now. And it's the, the part of his unique emphasis is to not conform to simply these external rules, which were legitimate, right? It's difficult enough. It's difficult enough to try to conform ourselves to these propositions that have been presented to us about how we are to live in the world. The, the urgency of Jesus' call is, yes, you know what? The law and the prophets were, are good. They are valuable. They were true and trustworthy. But what I'm really calling for is not just conformity to the rules, but a total transformation of your personhood a total transformation from the inside out. So a great example of this is like Matthew 5, where Jesus says that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus comes not to just tell you about the external command and to go, this is how you are to act, but he also says what will be necessary for you to participate in this mode of being, to actually act in the world this way, what will be required is an inner work of transformation that external moral, moral adherence simply can't do in and of itself. Jesus' teaching in Matthew is an utter and complete repudiation of consequentialism. Complete, utter repudiation of what we might call ethical pragmatism and a call for something deeper than just moralistic legalism. In Matthew's gospel, God's people are called to principled, empowered ethics. They're called to live in the world via this mode of transformation, this transformed inward self, this, the inner self that is transformed by Christ, that, that sees him as the transcendent source of, of all ethics and how we are to live, and calls people not just to go, hey, Here's the right information, and you need to practice this harder. He also rejects that we can do this simply on our own strength and power alone. He rejects ethics that's pragmatic, that the ends justify the means. In fact, Jesus is so principled that, that you have to, he has to also provide consolation to people in telling them, you know what? How you act in the world, whether it's right or wrong, is not dependent on its immediately perceivable effectiveness. It may not be immediately perceivable whether or not you acting in accordance with the kingdom of God, it may not be immediately perceivable that your acting in accordance with the kingdom of God is effective. Think about one example in the parable discourse in Matthew 13, the, the parable of the sower and the seed. The sower sows his seed regardless of the soil. The weeds and the weeds are indistinguishable from each other until the end time harvest. Uh, another example, like the mustard seed is small, but over time it grows into a tree. 
practicing Jesus's ethics is like a woman working yeast into 60 pounds of flour, like he talks about in Matthew 13 in these parable discourses. It's going to take time to bring it about. It's going to take time for its ultimate effectiveness to be made evident. So, for those that look at Jesus and go, well, Jesus was really pragmatic, I don't, you know, maybe you can do that if you try to put together some sort of weird composite picture where you cherry pick the bits and pieces of uh, the, the, the life and events of Jesus and you put it together. I, even at that, I don't know how you get there. But there is ways in which people go, yeah, I'm really trying to follow Jesus and I think Jesus was pretty pragmatic. And you're like, uh, I don't know, let's like, Let's look at Matthew, in particular, Matthew's witness. Doesn't seem pretty pragmatic. In fact, it's the opposite of consequentialism or pragmatism. It's principled to its very core, even to the point where you go, I don't know if this is working, and that's kind of part of the point. The ethical vision, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's lived out by the wise person, but it doesn't necessarily mean in the short term that it's going to bear immediate fruit that you go, wow, this thing's really working. No, the promise to people who act in keeping with the Sermon on the Mount, who are transformed from the inside out and are now acting in the world in a way that, that, that resembles the Sermon on the Mount discourse, the, the, they can have confidence that they will be found to be faithful and wise servants and will be, quote, put in charge of all of the master's possessions, like in Matthew 24, 45, 47, on judgment day. In this way, it's like Matthew and Mark's ethical vision of Jesus is in harmony. We see the harmony of these pictures. These are not, you know, when we put these two portraits next to each other, we see different facets and different features of Jesus, but the harmony comes and these actually, like in music, not making the two notes one, right? We don't make it univocal. We don't erode the distinctions between these two um, portraits. What we actually do is when we look at both of them, we go, oh, what a beautiful picture. I see points of resonance here. For example, we see loving your enemies as Jesus commands. For both Matthew and Mark, they're in harmony, right? You love your enemies, it's an act of faith. And it's not faith in the immediate pragmatic effectiveness, but it's faith in the final vindication of God's just eschatological judgment to set everything right. As Christians do this, the emphasis of Matthew is you do this, you're not just performing the law 2.0, but you're actually surrendering to the authority of Jesus and his eschatological ethic, trusting that what God had promised for the future is beginning to shape, take shape in the here and now. And that quote comes from New Testament scholar Joel B. Green. Again, even while we wait for that eschatological ethic to make its fulfillment, to reach its fulfillment, we trust that, quote, what God had promised for the future is beginning to take shape in the here and now. Portrait 3, Luke's Jesus, Salvation for the Poor, the Outcast, and the Marginalized. 
Luke's Gospel builds upon Mark and Matthew's portrait of Jesus, including Jesus' commands to pursue service instead of prestige and power, like in Luke 22, 24-27. And it affirms his status as the authoritative teacher to build your life upon, Luke 6, 17-49. But along with those pictures, Luke's portrait carries an even stronger emphasis on Jesus' ethical commands to care for the poor, the outcast, and the marginalized. The textual evidence points to Luke's audience being well-educated, financially well-to-do, and, and likely more culturally diverse and urban than Mark or Matthew's audience. Understanding this audience, Luke portrays Jesus in ways that seem to call them to use their privilege on behalf of the less fortunate. Luke 4.22, for example, and to consider God's inclusive love for all peoples regardless of their ethnic or national heritage. Luke's Jesus sharply challenges the first century Jewish prejudice towards Samaritans. He positively affirms women in ways that were radically subversive to patriarchal norms, with at least 13 parallel references that show the equal applicability of Jesus' words to both men and women. More than either of these two categories, though, Luke's Jesus seems more concerned for the poor than any other gospel author's portrait. The poor in Luke is not simply a category limited to those lacking just a, a minimum standard of material possessions, but instead it's it's broad enough term to include all of those who have been oppressed by systematic injustice. Understanding this helps make sense of the apparent disdain for the, quote, rich who live lavishly at the expense of the poor. Take a look at passages like Luke 1, 53, Luke 6, 20 to 21, 6, 24 to 25, 12, 6, uh, chapter 12, verse 16 to 21. Now, if some of you are hearing this stuff and you go, wow, you know, think back to my early analogy, the the Luke uh, Luke portrait of Jesus might sound like has a lot of resonance with the person that, you know, <laughs> frequently might have their pronouns labeled on the uh, on their Twitter bio. That's because there is ample reason for those who are in these sort of more progressive woke Christian communities to actually have ample evidence to believe that Jesus does really care for poor, oppressed, and marginalized people, that Jesus actually does see systematic issues of injustice as an issue in the same way that the person who might be a, you know, a, a Trump card carrying Republican Christian sees these sorts of calls, uh, these ethical calls of Jesus to take individual responsibility and to be a wide and wise and shrewd manager, like we see in some parables. They have ample evidence to point to to say that, hey, you know, I've got a picture of Jesus that I'm following that's actually biblical too. And this is why seeing each individual portrait. And not trying to erase the distinctions is so important. As Stanley Howell highlights, the social ethic for the Christian community that emphasizes care for the poor has always been part of God's revealed will. Remember God's commands to Israel, for example. Commands like, hey, you know, you should leave parts of your field unharvested for the poor. Luke's portrait of Jesus highlights what always was for Israel and continues to be central 
for this inclusive global people of God, that they're to be practicing the delivering love of God. That's a, that's a term from the ethicist Glenn Stassen. He, he coined the term the delivering love of God, and I love that. The delivering love of God, we are called to practice that in a world filled with injustices. Now, while the eschatological incentive for living in accordance with the way of Jesus as found in Matthew and Mark is still present in this gospel, Luke places a special and a particular emphasis that's unique to his portrait on the imminent availability of salvation's delivering love. Luke really sees that the delivering love of God is imminently available. And this might have to do with the context that he's writing to. These are people, again, who are living in urban areas, which we might think today is urban areas of people that might be more minorities and poor, but in that time, yes, there would still be, um, there could be poor people that live in urban areas, but the urban areas were typically where the rich could afford to live in places like in the city of Jerusalem versus out in the, the outskirts of town where the poor, more poor farmers would live. Maybe Luke assumes that these people can actually, instead of having to wait for the future eschatological rule and reign of God to come to remedy their situations, that these people might actually have the means to participate in God's delivering love in a way that makes it imminent for other people. Of the 17 references using Greek variants for the word salvation in Luke, Eight of those demonstrate someone receiving an immediate liberation from their bondage. Luke also frequently uses the word today to emphasize this eminence. You could look at Luke 2.11, Luke 19.10 as examples of that. Followers of Jesus don't just have hope in the future age to come. Luke doesn't eliminate that. It's not that Luke's gospel is now suddenly an over-realized eschatology, right? It's not that, you know, Luke is uh, suddenly, you know, Luke's the prosperity gospel. No, that's not the case. Luke still highlights that, you know, followers of Jesus have their hope in the future age to come. But Luke also emphasizes extra, in an extra way, that people can experience those salvific benefits in the present as they participate in the kingdom's liberation of the poor and liberation of the oppressed from their bondage. To put it another way, God's people are called to participate in God's justice. The fourth portrait, John's Jesus, the light of the world, who gives us his spirit. When compared to those synoptic gospels, we just got done talking about Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Obviously, they're ordered in the scriptures, in the canon as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we started with Mark because Mark was the earliest. When compared to those synoptic gospels, John presents his readers with a very different portrait of Jesus. You know, you might look at the three synoptic portraits and go, hey, you know, these look like similar artists or similar styles. Maybe if they were actual pieces of visual art, you might say they come from particular eras, right? You might say, oh, these are very realistic. And then you might look at John's and you go, wow, that looks really like abstract art or something. That looks like Picasso next to Rembrandt. And that, that's not the 
the best example, but it is hopefully a helpful example to highlight what's obvious when you get done reading the Synoptic Gospels and then you jump right into reading John. There's these really weird things about John's Gospel, like there's no parables. Yeah, maybe you've never noticed that before. No parables in John or in John's Gospel. Isn't that weird? No eating with outcasts. Jesus doesn't cast out any demons. And actually, he has much less to directly say about the kingdom and the ethics of the kingdom of God that that we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There, those books are much more explicit. There's fewer explicit calls to suffering servanthood, as in Mark, or fewer calls to love your enemies like Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, or even calls to sell your possessions and care for the poor, as in Luke's Gospel. Reading John's Gospel can be a bit weird and disorienting. (laughs) What is going on with this book? Even the word repentance is never used. Isn't that crazy? You'd think, well, it's a gospel. Like, what? how did Jesus talk? We told, spoke in parables and told people to repent. Not mentioned once in John's gospel. That doesn't mean the concept of repentance isn't to be found in John's gospel, but that word's never used. And while as different as this portrait may be, it presents us with something so crucial, so central to our picture who Jesus actually was and is. The one thing most explicit about John's portrait compared to the other three is this. If you've seen Jesus, then you've seen God. More so than any other synoptic author, John presents us with the cosmic Christ, the Word, capital W, the Logos made flesh, and the very reason of God. This contribution is so crucial to making sure early early believers didn't wrongly conclude that Jesus, Jesus was simply offering his version of the Torah. No, Jesus as God in the flesh was and is simultaneously the light of all mankind, the true light that gives light to everyone. We see that in John 1 right away. While at the same time, Christ ushers in this Jesus, this portrait of Jesus in the gospel shows us a picture of Jesus that ushers in a kingdom that is not of this world. There's this tension in affirming that whatever truth, goodness, and beauty exists in the world exists as the light of Christ, while simultaneously affirming that the world, quote, that's something that John talks about way more than any other synoptic gospel author, that the world is hostile to Jesus and his followers. Just look at John 1.10 as one example of this odd tension. John's vision of Jesus as the Logos has been the basis for things like Aquinas' defense of natural law and simultaneously informed the positions of those like Stanley Hauerwas and, you know, who see the world as being something external to the church to seeing the world as, quote, those who have not chosen to make the story of God their story, end quote. That's from Hauerwas. In reality, the two ethical approaches of Aquinas and Hauerwas, as they interpret John's portrait of Jesus, are not that distant. Though later theologians like Aquinas and 
contemporary theologian Stanley Hauerwas would certainly have their theological disagreements. Both he, both Hauerwas and Aquinas, I think, would agree that from John we get this idea that every just law and ethical behavior finds their source in Christ, and two, that Christians do not have a monopoly on epistemological access to ethical wisdom. Christ was the light and the light of all mankind, even those who don't even see him as Christ. Any, any way that people have participated in any light at all, any goodness, any truth, any beauty, all comes from Christ. Finally, to empower Christians as they bear witness to the light of the world and to teach them how to live in the absence of Jesus' physical presence on earth, John's gospel shows Jesus frequently promising his spirit the paraclete, to help them. This is also a unique feature of John's portrait. The paraclete does this by reminding believers of Jesus' teaching, but not only that, he also does this, and his work even goes just even goes beyond reminding us of Jesus' teaching as if he's just reminding us of propositions. His, his work even goes beyond into enhancing our ability to make sense of and to practice Jesus' teachings to actually guide us into all truth. Look at John 16, verses 12 to 13 for an example of that. The presence of the paraclete in the life of the believer helps them ethically navigate how to live in the world where there is no explicit teaching of Jesus. And then it moves the believer beyond a legalistic ethos and into understanding that what is good, what is the right mode of being for us, what is the right thing for us to do, is always what God is willing at that particular moment. So let's say we're in this sort of art gallery, these four portraits of Jesus, and we are to step back, and we've looked at each of these four, and we've let them stand by themselves. We've, we've not tried to force them to become one picture, and in doing so, lose the distinct emphases of these, but we step back, and we've observed all of them together, and we go, all right, based on these four portraits, what can we say is true about the way we are to be in the world, the way we are to follow Jesus in the world? As we step back and we discuss that together, what are these few, these four beautiful but different paintings of this person of Jesus showing us? How, how can they help us, how can they help inform a more complete understanding of the ethics of Jesus and how we're supposed to follow him. Well, this might be what I would say. Jesus' ethics from above, that is, the way we are to live is not derived by our own imaginations. It doesn't just spring up internally within us on our own, but the way we ought to live, the vision for how we ought to be in the world is derived from a source that transcends us. That source is Jesus. Jesus' ethics from above is the ultimate authority of God's divine revealed will. We saw that in Matthew, as Matthew showed us that God gave us a seed of that through the law and the prophets. And that, that the law and the prophets could be summed up as love for God and love for others. We see that emphasized not just in Matthew. We see love of God, love for others as the summing of the law in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The practice of the great commandment, love God, love others, should take the shape of living in the world in these ways. You should live in the world as you love God and other people. You should live as a suffering servant. 
That's Mark's portrait. You should live surrendered wholly to the teaching and example of Jesus as authoritative. That's Matthew's portrait. You shouldn't live for, do it for utilitarian or pragmatic purposes, but you should do so in faith as you trust that God will finally set right the world, just as we see in Mark and Matthew. As we do that, we participate in the kingdom, which is not only to come, but it's here with benefits and power for today, like in Luke's gospel. Living as Christ in the world carries with it a principled, not a pragmatic call to care for the poor and the oppressed, even if it doesn't work in the here and now. We don't hold fast to only seeing what's immediately in front of us. We hold fast to this because we trust in Jesus as the source of how things ought to be. We cannot see that source. We cannot see where it's going to head. It is a mustard seed. We don't know how big the tree is going to grow. And if we just look at that mustard seed, we don't see the potentiality of what will emerge out of that seed. So living as Christ in the world means we live principally, not pragmatically, in our care for the poor and the oppressed. And we live in a way that we repent from our own behavior that materially gains from their own systematic compression their own systematic oppression. And this is, this is so important because we need to be working to bring about the liberation of the poor in the here and now. This isn't some, you know, you know, Marxist ideology. The Marxist ideologues have hijacked the true nature of the kingdom of God, which is we are to work to bring about the liberation of the poor and the oppressed in the here and now, but not via violence through our own suffering servanthood. Even if we don't see the immediate results, we do this to hold fast to our eternal reward, the belief and trust that God is going to set it all right. And, and all good— We could also say that all good, wherever it can be found in the world, comes from Christ. This is the unique contribution of John's gospel that we might have missed if we just looked at the first three portraits. He's both the grounds and the the revelation of the ultimate good. People everywhere may discern his light in accordance with their natural reason and walk in it. We see that affirmed in John 1, verses 4 through 13, but also burned by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, 18 to 20. Yet, even as we do that, even as we, we, we believe that there are people everywhere that God has given them the common grace to discern his light, we can also expect resistance from the world as there is much darkness. But the hope of John's gospel is that the darkness will not overcome the light of Christ. Jesus doesn't just give us some ethical legislation, that's an update, but he gives us his spirit, the very person, a very the very person of the triune God, so that we can have the scriptures and his cruciform character and example and reason to provide the bounds of discernment as we follow the present tense guiding of the spirit in every situation ethical vision that fills the pages of the New Testament outside of the Gospels, like the epistles, like Paul in Romans, affirms these things. It reminds believers that they are led by the Spirit to do what the law was, quote, powerless to do. And they're not to be led by 
and using phrases Paul uses over and over, like like they're not to be led by the flesh. Paul says things like creation has been groaning for its, quote, liberation from its bondage to decay, like in Romans 8. We see this modeled in Acts as the early Christian community sells their possessions to care for the four, care for the poor, and then finally, the, sh- the final shalom of God and the reward for our participation in the kingdom is illumined in Revelation, and it motivates us to press onward in faithfulness in the face of persecution. There's challenges as we attempt to discern who Christ was as we attempt to follow his pattern of being in the world, that we receive his spirit and we attempt to discern the limitations and the, the, proper, the proper steps and, and activities that constitute following Jesus in the world. It's challenging. It's challenging to do and practice, but it's even challenging to discern. These are biographies written to Christian communities for the purposes of discipleship. And what makes it so hard, one thing that makes this so hard is that we read in each of these, these, these are Christian communities in pre-Constantinian, hostile to Christianity. <laughs> it's an era that's very different than ours, even as, with as much talk as there is about the erosion of religious liberties and things like that which I'm not trying to discount, we would have to just simply confess that it'd be far worse to be a Christian in the first century in the Roman Empire than it would be to be a Christian in 2020 in America, right? I mean, we can we can say that, right? The difficulty is that it's hard to bring the sorts of anachronistic questions to the table that we might have today about you know, who should we vote for and how how and if we should participate in the political process in any particular way. It's important that we understand that that taking what's intended to be primarily a guide to first century church communities and their catechism and using it, for example, to construct U.S. legislation involving gun laws, immigration, LGBT issues, or it, it's difficult because it, it Maybe it's a case of using the wrong tool for the job, but if it is, what other ethical guide do we go to? Do we go to natural laws interpreted through the lens of philosophical liberalism? These are really difficult questions, and they deserve debate, but they should not, they should not eliminate the fact that we are fully able to allow the Jesus we have received the Jesus of the four Gospels, to shape how we live today as communities of disciples in the 21st century. I want to thank everyone for listening to today's episode. As always, if you have questions, objections, observations, I encourage you to reach out to me. I'm taking a bit of a social media fast during the Lent season, which um, you know I'll jump back on and be much much more active once again on Twitter and, and Instagram after uh, after Easter. But until that time, you could reach out to me on Patreon, which is the platform I use that allows people to support this podcast and to be uh, more active participants and hopefully a growing community of people that are, are, are searching through, or wrestling with these deep and important questions about life and meaning and theology and philosophy. I want to thank those contributors in the Deep Talks Patreon community. I specifically want to thank people like Jason N., Luke H., 
Paul R. I want to thank you guys for your special contributions to this podcast and your significant support of the work that I'm doing. I'm thankful to all of you for the contributions, whether you're just giving at $2 a month or all the way up to those of you that are giving $15 a month right now. Thank you guys for your support. It means the world to me. We're approaching almost two years of doing this podcast, and uh, I hope it's been helpful. And I hope it's something that you guys continue to see as worth supporting. If it's something you want to support, I always have a link in the description to this podcast where you can become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community. You can support this podcast at whatever level you see fit. And there's different tiers of rewards for things like uh, additional Q&A episodes and you know, having your questions be um, questions that I specifically try to uh, address in those Q&A episodes. There's other bonus things like I'll put out graphics and stuff like that that are helpful for particular podcasts. So hopefully there's some value there that's added in being a, a, a supporter. Another way you can support is just simply leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the primary way people are, are uh, finding and discovering new podcasts, even if you listen in some other medium. If you can go over there and leave a review of whatever you feel like saying, you don't have to butter me up or anything like that. But I asked simply because it's a way that people can um, more likely discover this podcast. The more reviewed podcasts are pushed to the top of uh, search engines. And so people that are looking perhaps for whatever I'm providing here, <laughs> Um, might be more likely to discover it that way. Thank you guys for listening. Again, I do plan on picking up the Problem of Evil series. I just want to do it justice and do it well. And I'm still working through on how to present the, the final few chapters and episodes of that. So um, thanks for your patience as I sort that out. In the meantime, I continue to put on, want to put out additional um, episodes in the, in the meantime. So Thank you guys uh, for your support. Again, if you have questions, reach out to me on Patreon for the time being. You can reach out to me on Twitter. I just probably won't respond back for a while <laughs> till after Easter. So thanks again for listening. Until next time, we'll talk again soon.